0: Father, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you in spirit and in truth, and we just ask that your spirit would continue to be among us here, would superintend our time together, would apply your word to our hearts, and all these things, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. You know, uh, we, we've got some sick kids, some families calling in this morning going, we're not bringing sick kids to church. and. Uh, it's Memorial Day weekend, trying to get in that last hoorah at the beach, and I'm just lamenting the onset of fall. Some of you are, are already drinking pumpkin spice, and I just want to rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> it's, uh, it's too soon. It's too soon. The summers are so short here, and I can already feel the seasonal affective disorder coming on. It's, oh, man. Amen. Yeah. Some of you grew up in that, and you're like, I can't wait. No. No. Um, We we are in the home stretch of Daniel. We're coming to the end of our series, and Daniel chapters ten through twelve are basically one long prophecy. And it's going to take us another three or four weeks to unpack that as we wrap up the book of Daniel. And when we're done, if we're still here and Jesus has not come to take us home, uh, then we'll be starting a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a fun book written by Solomon in his heyday when he was in his existentialist dilemma. And uh, we're going to call this series Under the Sun because uh, Solomon keeps appealing to there's nothing new. And he uses the phrase under the sun again and again and again. And what he means is in this closed system where God is not a part of the system, everything is meaningless. And it's this really great uh, treatise on secularism. And so we're going to look through that together. It's going to be a lot of fun. So as we Wrap up this morning, I was reading uh, this week about uh, a guy named Abraham Kuiper. Uh, lived from 1837 to 1920, one of the most extraordinary individuals of his time. This guy was a prolific intellectual and theologian. Uh, he he uh, founded the Free University in Amsterdam. He was also an active politician. He served as a member of the parliament in the Netherlands and, and eventually went on to serve as the prime minister from 1901 to 1905. And so not not only a politician, but something of a theologian. And and so I was reading up on him this week because I found this quote, and I thought this quote was really intriguing. He said, uh, regarding the unseen realities of the spirit realm and the conflict that rages all around us unseen, he had this to say. If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle here just drones in its backlash. That, that's, that's, a, that's an astounding thing to say. And, and he's absolutely right. You see, you and I were born into a world that is at war. And I don't mean a geopolitical conflict, I don't mean ethnic skirmishes, I mean a spiritual war that has been raging almost since the very beginning of time itself. And our foe, our enemy, is formidable, and his goal is to destroy us he wants to undermine and discredit the gospel and the cause of Jesus Christ. He is the prince of the demonic realm, according to Jesus in Luke 15. He is the highest of all the angelic beings, created perfect in beauty and splendor, but then fallen because of the sin of pride. And we've got to learn to respect our foe, but not fear him. We, we need to become aware and familiar with his tactics, but not become preoccupied with them. And Daniel 10 gives us some really unique glimpses into this ongoing conflict. And we're going to get, uh, we're going to get through the entire chapter of 10 this morning, so, so we're just going to jump in. But remember, as we do, that when it comes to spiritual warfare, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, and I hope that describes everybody in the room, uh, we do not fight for victory. We're fighting from victory because Jesus Christ has already won, okay? And we've got to remember that. We've got to remember that. That's our position. So Daniel chapter 10, uh, whereas normally I'd read the text and then we go back and unpack it, we're just going to jump right into the exposition because there's so much to cover. Uh, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. And that word was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So here we are in the third year of the reign of Darius. That would be five thirty-six BC. Remember that the just previous to that we had the defeat of King Belshazzar. He was having that raucous drinking party and using the instruments of worship, the vessels from the temple for for uh, red solo cups at his at his party. And God showed up and wrote on the wall, and he pooped his pants. And I just. I wasn't, it's not even in my notes. I just had to go back. Um, but we've been, so, so we've been reading in nine, right? This prophecy in Daniel nine, we get to chapter 10 and we've skipped ahead two years from that. And by this time, the first wave of exiles has already returned to Jerusalem under the leader of Ezra. If you've ever studied Nehemiah and Ezra, you, you know, they came back in waves. And, and so, uh, Ezra's returned chapters one and two of Ezra. Um, but this is, but what Daniel's Seeing here, what's being detailed in these chapters is this great conflict. We're getting a glimpse behind the scenes here in chapter 10. And what has been God's agenda regarding the kingdoms of man and the coming kingdom of Jesus involves not only good actors, but malevolent actors as well. There are malevolent entities in the world that want to do us harm. And it's not just the human realm, we're talking about the spirit realm, okay? And so, verse 2 says, In those days, I, Daniel, I was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, and I did not anoint myself at all for three full weeks. Now, incidentally, this this is the time of Passover where he ideally would have been celebrating the Passover, but he's so distraught. Uh, Some think that Daniel was in mourning because so few Jews had actually returned with Ezra from exile. Most of them had just decided to stay where they were. Others believe it was because Ezra was facing really severe opposition in the rebuilding of the temple. But in either case, Daniel did not go back with Ezra's group because he's, he's about 84 years at this time. And we can only deduce, we don't Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly, but we would deduce that he thought maybe he could serve the exiles better from his high position in government than he could if he was back in Jerusalem with them. So in verse 4, it says, on the 24th day, of the first month i was standing on the bank of the great river that is the tigris i lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a man clothed in linen with a fine belt a belt of fine gold from ufaz around his waist and his body was like beryl and his face was the, had the appearance of lightning and his eyes were flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. So Daniel's there by the river and he looks up and he, and he sees into the spirit realm and he sees this person and the, and the vision of this person is overwhelming. Commentators divide on the identity of this certain person. Some say that it's Jesus, and they note that this description here is remarkably similar to what John sees in Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16. L- listen to what John wrote. Let me, let me just read it to you so you can, so you can get the comparison. John says, And I turned to see, to look at the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Do you remember that from Daniel 7? Who's that? It's Jesus, right? And, and so that Son of Man was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest, and the hair of his head were white like, like wool, white like snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roaring of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining at full strength. Now, I, I got to just tell you, before I undertook uh, an in-depth study this week of this passage, I think I'd have been more quick to point out, uh, th- uh, to think that this was maybe Gabriel or Michael or some angel, uh, because you'll see that um, this, this, this person who's talking later uh, has trouble getting past this demonic entity called the Prince of Persia. And that wouldn't qualify as Jesus because Jesus doesn't need help with demons. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But, but Daniel's response here is severe enough to be telling for us. And, and I think I, I, I've misunderstood the passage for a long time, and, and I'll explain as we go along. But um, Daniel's response, he's encountered angels. We, we've seen Daniel interact with angels on multiple occasions, and, um, and, and, and he's seen things that no man has seen. But here, Daniel's almost catatonic. He's overwhelmed. He's in a heap on the ground, just writhing, we'll see in the next verses. And and so I'm, I'm, I'm shifting my position here to say that I do think this is Jesus. And I do think it corresponds to Revelation 1. And I think there's a break between verses 9 and 10 that we'll see in just a minute that explains why this is the case. So follow me here as we go on to verse 7. It says, "...and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me, and my, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength, and then I heard the sound of his words, and, and, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So, so Daniel saw all this regarding the glorious one, but his companions could not see what he was seeing, and, and it made me think about um, Acts chapter 9 and Saul on the road to Damascus. Do you remember what happened? It says, as he went on his way, he was approaching Damascus and suddenly there was a light from heaven that shone all around him and he fell to the ground. He got knocked off his horse and he, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? There's this bright light in the sky. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. But the key verse is seven. It says, and the men who were traveling with Saul stood there speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So they had some degree of interaction with this vision, but they, they didn't get the whole thing, right? And, and so this thing with Daniel is kind of similar. These people that were with him, they, they, they're sensing something supernatural, great fears falling on them, but they can't, they're not seeing what Daniel's seeing, right? So you can be close to the presence and power of God and still miss the message to be careful about, I just want to be near, I just want to experience his power. Now you got to get the truth too. It's not enough just to be close to God, right? And Daniel can't even handle seeing Jesus glorified. He loses consciousness. So verse 10, we go on. It says, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, This, this person who, who touched Daniel in verse 10 says, Oh Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. See, I think the one who touched Daniel and helped him get up is Gabriel once again, not the person that he was seeing in verses 4 through 6. I think he had a vision of the glorified Jesus. And then Gabriel had to come along and be like, dude, get up, get up, get up. This is the second time Daniel was called greatly beloved. Um, Each time it's in relation to Daniel being favored Uh, with a great and significant revelation of the future. It's crazy, the things that were disclosed to him and that he, by his own admission, didn't even understand fully in his lifetime, that we have the opportunity because we have the fullness of God's word to go back and unpack. You understand the privilege that God has given us and given us the fullness of his word? It's just crazy. We look at Daniel and we go, gosh, that is awesome to be a prophet and to receive. He didn't understand. He didn't understand all of it. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about Daniel's episode here in chapter 10. Spurgeon said, It did not do Daniel any harm to know that he was greatly beloved of God, or else he would not have received that information from heaven. Some people are always afraid that if Christian people obtain full assurance and receive a sweet sense of divine love, they're going to grow proud and be carried away with conceit. Spurgeon says, Do not have any such fear for other people, and especially don't be afraid of it for yourselves. I know of no greater blessing that can happen to any man or woman than to be assured by the Spirit of God that they are greatly beloved of the Lord. Yeah, we need that in our day. We don't need to be afraid of God assuring us of His love for us. We need to hear that again and again and again. And then he said to me, verse 12, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is, uh, what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So it's just like stop, full stop. Like, wow, did you, did you catch that? I mean, what is going on? What is going on in the angelic realm? This is is a crazy passage. You understand? This is a crazy passage. God responded to Daniel's prayer at the very moment that he made his request known, even though the answer took time to arrive. Daniel had been in great and serious prayer for three full weeks waiting on an answer not knowing the reason for the delay, not knowing what the answer would be. He's a man of perseverance. And, and, and as an aside, we need to learn that discipline if we're going to walk in victory. We've got to learn to persevere in prayer. But we see that this angel is dispatched because of Daniel's prayer immediately. And this is another of many reminders of the book of Daniel that prayer matters. Prayer is important. But, but it's, not, it's not some therapeutic exercise that, that only benefits the person who prays like, oh, that just made me feel better. That's not... It's effectual. It accomplishes things. I and mean, when my kids were little and, and and they would be somewhere else in the house and I'm doing something, I hear them start calling my name like they're in trouble. You know what Daddy would do? Daddy came running I and mean, the whole house is shaking. Dad's like, boom, 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 big footsteps. come. Right? I care. I care about my little ones. Right? Our Father cares for us. We, we, we cry out to Him. Our prayers are effectual. They accomplish That's essential to the Christ follower that we pray. And then then there's this Prince of Persia character. Since this Prince of Persia was able to oppose Gabriel in coming to Daniel, we we can know that this is more than a, a mere human and therefore some kind of angelic being as well. We know that he's malevolent, he's evil. Uh, because he's opposed to the word of God coming to Daniel, stood against the angelic messenger that had been sent. So now we're dealing with a demonic captain or prince or ruler. And in every instance of these verses, the Hebrew word for prince is sar. And sar is defined as head over, in, as in rank or class. It means captain, chief, or steward over. And the Israelites, actually, it's interesting because the Israelites used this word when they were angry with Moses, when God appointed him. Uh, privately, and then Moses was like, okay, I'm going to start leading. And then the Israelites were like, how dare you set yourself over us as Sar uh, in Exodus 2 and in number 16? How, how dare you presume to rule over us as a prince? Right? And so, of course, God's the one that appointed Moses, but that's not the point. Moses over the people in a position of authority is the, the word that's being used here to describe this entity, this prince of Persia. So we see that these demonic beings are referenced as beings classified according to rank. They've been given stewardship in the kingdom of darkness as demonstrated by geographic place names being attached to the title prince. And so it's interesting to note and Gabriel uses the same verbiage referring to Michael the archangel. He says, your prince, Daniel, the prince of your people. So it seems then that we can infer that Michael has been given charge over the nation of Israel as a, as a protector. Um, and we can deduce that this prince of Persia was, and, and I guess presumably still is, a demon of high rank that opposed the answer to prayer. There's a lot going on here. I mean, this is not what you came to church for this morning going, what in the world are we reading? Is this a Frank Peretti novel? No, this is, this is Daniel. This is Daniel. Um, verse 15, When he had spoken to me these words, I turned my face to the ground, and I was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and then I, I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant Talk with my Lord, for no strength now remains in me. No breath is left in me. The ancient Hebrew word translated sorrows here is uh, the thought of twisting and writhing in pain. It's used several places in the Old Testament for labor pains in childbirth. Daniel's so severely afflicted by this vision that he can barely breathe, much less is he able to deal with the prophetic complexities and implications. He's just writhing. He's been on the ground just writhing. And so, In verse 18, it says, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, but... I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This is wild. This is wild. Daniel's about to receive the answer to his prayer as we go into chapter 11. But the battle's not over for this heavenly messenger. He has to he, he has to battle the prince of Persia again and then the prince of Greece who's going to come later. And and, and so God is watching out for Israel. God's working behind the scenes in the spirit realm. This tells us that Satan, because he is finite and he's limited, he has to organize his forces much like we would organize our military. Uh, Are there demonic entities assigned to geographic locations today? I, I would say yes. You better believe it. Do you honestly, I mean, think about it for a minute. Do you honestly think what's happening in Seattle, Portland, and Minneapolis is merely human in origin? It's demonically inspired. There are demons behind this, and when you, when you read that BLM is holding seances to call up the spirits of their ancestors to empower them, like we know that they're not talking to their ancestors, they're talking to demons. Okay, this is a big deal. We're, we're, to think to think that those are their ancestors, it's like well, the Bible tells us that that's not true. I, I would, I would hope that we the Christians the church would have opportunity to to bring clarity to this in the days ahead. We pray for their salvation but um from this passage in Daniel we see that God is faithful to supply the strength that we need. And I don't know about you but I'm really tempted to be jealous that it came through glorious angels to men like Daniel and not to us. I, I'm, I'm tempted I like this I'm just feeling kind of left out. And, and then I step back and the Holy Spirit says, you're not thinking clearly, son. You're not thinking clearly. Because the reality is we in the, in the New Testament times, in the, in the church age, have a far better situation than any Old Testament saint, including Daniel. I mean, think about it. Well, what does Scripture say? Every time that a person in the Old Testament was used of God, it says the Spirit came upon Samson or David or Jephthah or whoever it was. And then the Spirit departed, right? Because they were under the law. They were still unclean. They, they were not saved at that point, the way that we're saved. The, the grace of God, the, the gospel wasn't presented in that way, right? So the Spirit would come upon them. The Spirit would depart from them. And then we get to the new covenant, and this reality is, is markedly different. says the Spirit doesn't come upon you now, believer in Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes to live in you comes to dwell in you, takes up residence in you. That's crazy. And so that, that third person, of the Trinity, lives in us now. The Holy Spirit supplies all of our needs according to His riches and glory. And so our situation is infinitely better, infinitely better. I, I've asked uh, groups of young adults this question uh, on several occasions. I said, man, what would you prefer? Like coming to church the way church is now, or if Jesus was still alive on the earth and He was pastoring a church? What would be the better situation? And almost always, like most of them are like, I'd go to Jesus' church. It's like you and about two billion other people would try to cram into Jesus' church every week. And there'd be no other pastors and no other churches because nobody would want to go hear somebody else. They'd all go to Jesus' church, right? And he knew that that wasn't going to work. So he said, I'm out. Back to the Father, Holy Spirit. Now there are churches everywhere. The expressions of the body of Christ are everywhere, Right? And not all trying to cram into Jesus' church every, every Sunday. We we are, but but it's, it's it's spread out, right? It's decentralized. And I love that. And I love this admonition to Daniel here in the text. I love what Gabriel says to him. He says, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. The New American Standard, I was reading. I always read a couple of different translations when I'm studying during the week. It says, take courage and be courageous. I love that repetition. Take courage and be courageous. In other words, don't just receive courage into yourself to assuage your fears internally, but then put it to use as you operate in the world around you, right? Be be strong and of good courage. Take courage and be courageous. And truth be told, as our eyes are opened, To the reality of the spirit realm all around us, we're going to need Holy Spirit courage to calm our hearts, to calm our minds in Christ Jesus, and to move us into action and engagement, not just to settle us down, but to move us to obedience uh, as we follow Christ. And, And I'll just stop again. I know I say this sometimes. If you could see what happens all around this building on Sunday mornings in the spirit realm, you'd be astounded. You would be astounded. There's spiritual warfare happening all around this building. And, and sometimes I'm really jealous to see it, and other times I'm just really glad that I can't because I think it would scare me half to death. And Daniel describes this whole thing as the great conflict, it's something that every one of us is a part of, whether we, whether we like it or not, whether we want it to be or not, whether we realize it or not. You think, well, why did... Why did Jesus even come? Well, 1 John 3 answers that question. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The day of Satan's final destruction has not yet come, but it is coming. It is coming. Revelation 12, 12, uh, it says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. He knows that his time is short. As the days draw near to the return of Christ, evil is ramping up because he knows his time is short. He's focused and constantly seeking to take ground. He doesn't waste a single minute because he's finite. He's limited. He's got to make the most use of the time he has. Jesus, uh, or excuse me, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. And uh, again, we see that word sar, right, for prince. And there's so much there. That I want to say on this topic about the spirit realm, about angels, about demons, about the battle that's raging all around us. Uh, but, but as I thought about this this week, I thought you guys weren't going to really probably sit for a 90-minute sermon. So <laughs> what I'll do is I'm just going to give you two key scriptures here this morning as, as, we, uh, as we wrap up chapter 10. And the first one is Ephesians 6, classic passage on spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. Listen to what Paul says. Just given just a quick little primer at the end of his letter to the church at Ephesus on spiritual warfare. And he says, finally, you got all the other stuff straight. Your, your home life, your marriages, your family, your kids. You got all that stuff straightened out and you're, you're honoring Jesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And, and what he's saying is you have to allow yourself to continually being strengthened by the power and might of God that's been made available to you. Uh, because of your right standing, because of Jesus. It's not a one and done. So, well, be strengthened in the power of his might. Well, that happened to me in 1982. So, no, I need that today. You need that today. And you're going to need it again tomorrow. You're going to need to be strengthened in the power of his might. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, How do we do that? By continually and repeatedly putting on and embracing the spiritual protection that God has provided for each one of us. Armor is largely defensive, right? It's, it's, it's to repel the enemy's attacks. It's designed to help you hold your position and protect you even as you are bombarded by Satan's strategies and efforts and attacks. These, these pieces of armor here in Ephesians uh, 6 are designed to render you Effective for Christ when it comes to pursuits, because the enemy's trying to make you ineffective. He's trying to just get you to crumple up in a heap and 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 just stop pursuing Jesus in His ways. And so then and then the sword of the Spirit is my favorite part because it's for lopping off demon heads. And the sword, uh, swords are offensive weapons. If you ever come to my house and you have a chance to step into my office, you're going to see about six or seven swords because I love so I love sharp things. And then there are hidden knives everywhere that you don't even know about, right? Um, so the sword is our offensive weapon, and, and the sword gets in us. The Spirit of God, the Word of God gets in us, and it sharpens us, and then it comes pouring out of us as we minister to the lost. And then, and then in verse 12 here, uh, he says, "For we, The whole purpose of giving you this armor is because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle's not against people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so, this is the why, right? This is Paul giving us the why behind this. The reason for this is that we are at war with an enemy that we cannot touch or see or feel. We're at war, and the battle rages around us all day, every day, and we can't engage it in our flesh. And we can't see it with our eyes. And so we lose sight of the fact, we we forget that it's happening sometimes. And we just kind of get into this routine and we settle into complacency and we forget about this reality. It's not a war against physical adversaries. It's not a war against people. It's not a conflict uh, that is circumstantial. It's not even against organizations. It's, it's a hierarchy of demonic adversaries. It's an army of hellish creatures that are opposed to us in every way. And, and, and we're told in the Scripture that the purpose that they have is to steal, kill, and destroy. And Scripture's really loud about this. And yet, it seems like the church, we, the church, lose sight of it pretty regularly. We just kind of drift into complacency. We drift into, man, i got to run errands today. Oh, man, that, that guy at Walmart, he, was, he, he asked me for five bucks. Man, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I steered clear of that guy. You know, It's like, wow, what if, what if for just a minute we had a Daniel moment and we could see the reality and we could stop and pray for people, we could stop and engage them with the gospel, and we considered that what we were doing in those moments is not just ministry, being good Christians, but it's warfare. What if we could get in that mindset, right? Scripture is loud and clear. Loud and clear. So funny. Yesterday, I was uh, two days ago. <clears throat> I was asked at the last minute on Friday to pray at a local political rally, um, to to pray over the candidates and uh, over our and open the time that we had together at the, at this event. And so uh, I said, "Yeah, sure, I'll I'll do that." And and so I got up to pray, and I thank God for the candidates who are honorable and. And I thanked God for those who still have good morals and values. And I, and I asked God to bless and use those candidates who would honor him and stand for what is right and good to, to bring an end to lawlessness in our state and in our nation. And then I wrapped up my prayer with one last statement that may have gotten me disinvited from ever getting to do this again. I said this, and I didn't know that I was... I'll just tell you what I said. I said... Our hope is not in the political process, nor is our hope in conservative candidates. Ultimately, our hope is in you alone, Lord. Amen. And I looked up, and there was a whole sea of people going, Why are you here? This is our hope. These people, these candidates, their office, their election, that's, that's our hope. And it's like, no, it's not our hope. It's not our hope. I've never seen so many looks of confusion mixed with consternation. Uh, We've we've never been more apt to put our hope in all the wrong things than we are at this very moment. The more beleaguered we are and and embattled we are in this world and in our culture, the more apt we are to grasp on to something else for hope. And and, and the, the Word says, no, man, sharpen your focus. It's Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. Yes, we need godly leaders in office, but without a move of the Holy Spirit, reviving the church and awakening the lost, we are done. We're done. We live in a world that's at war. We live in a world that's at war. This thing is happening all around us. Uh, we see it every day, the corrupt leaders, the politicians, the riots, the looting, the crumbling of our culture, that's all seen, that's all in the physical realm. But do not forget for one moment that there is an unseen power behind it that is just as real and just as deadly as anything that you can see with your two eyes. That's the reality where we live. And the church has to awaken to the fact that there is an invisible realm all around us that is just as real as the world that we see every day. And as a very important aside, I say this is one of the many reasons why you cannot harmonize naturalism, Darwinian evolution, with Christianity. You can't do it. it. It doesn't work. And I'll tell you why. Because we are not a product of space plus time plus chance. You're not lucky mud. You're not space dust. Okay? That's not how this thing happened. You, you have inherent worth and value and dignity for a reason because you're made in the image of God. And that's not even the main point. The main point of this whole divide between Darwinian evolution and, and biblical Christianity is that um, the physical universe is not all that there is. See, naturalism says the physical universe is all that we, all that we have. It's all that is. And, 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 I'm, and we're going to know, like, read the Bible. There's an immaterial reality all around us. There are sentient thinking, decision-making beings that are just as real as you and me that you can't see. And that's not the case in naturalism. The physical universe is all that is and all that ever will be. And the worldview, that worldview does not cohere with the Bible in any way, shape, or form, and we should not try to synthesize them. And when we read passages, when we we'll just read books like Daniel, angels appearing, bringing messages from an unseen God, telling the future in advance, we go, yeah, naturalism, pfft, it doesn't work. It's not a coherent worldview. And, and on the topic of the supernatural and angels and demons, I know I say this from time to time, but there are angels in this room right now at this very moment. And if you could just see one, you'd be terrified. I mean, I'm mean, i talking about the good ones, right? They're majestic and, and terrifying. Terrifying like suddenly looking up in the Serengeti, standing there with nobody around you and realizing that there's a massive lying 10 feet from you. You go, wow, pretty kitty. I'm about to die, right? There's this mix of like appreciation and, oh, that's majestic and beautiful. And I'm in mortal peril, all mixed together at the same moment, right? That's, that's what angels are like. And so um, w- when was the last time that you stopped? And just consider for a moment that some situation, some relational conflict, some circumstance in your life was actually rooted in satanic opposition. See, Daniel's a godly man, and he prayed. And God answered immediately and dispatched an angel, and it still took 21 days. Because there's satanic opposition. There's demonic opposition to the things that we do in the Spirit. We need to understand that, church. And we need to pray into that. We need to pray more. We, we don't pray enough. Why am I not more attuned to this reality? I've been studying all week and asking myself that question all week long. Why am I not more attuned to this reality? I'm not saying to default to the idea there's a demon behind every bush. I'm just saying that as born-again disciples of Jesus Christ, we ought to be more aware every day of the spiritual reality that we navigate in this world. We need to ask God for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand what's really happening in these moments. Paul, Paul again, 2 Corinthians 10, he says though we walk in the flesh, we live in these bodies of flesh, right? He said we're not waging war according to the flesh. Our war is not with physical weapons, right? He says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to, to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience, church, is complete. When we are walking with the Lord, our war is not It's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war in, in a realm that we can't see. You can't walk up and punch a demon in the face or put one in a chokehold. Or you can't shoot one with your AR-15 or your Glock 19. Man, I'm feeling violent today for some reason. I don't know. But we're dealing with spiritual entities, and, and we, we can't wage war the, war the way that we think we would wage war. The weapons God has placed at our disposal are incredibly powerful weapons, but just like physical weapons, they take time and discipline to wield them effectively. Now, I'm, I'm pretty good with a sword because I've been handling swords and knives for a long time. I'm just getting into handguns, and so it was really funny. A couple of weeks ago, I took Jen and we went to the range and we took like a beginner's handgun class. Know you give me a rifle, I'm, I'm good all day long. But handguns are a different thing, right? And I realized like it takes a lot of discipline to, to not just wheel around to the instructor and be like, hey, did you, right? It's like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? Right? There's there's the discipline and routine and to, to wield a weapon and, and to learn to handle it properly and to use it effectively takes practice and time and consistency. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be in the Word of the God. The Word of God, that's the sword of the Spirit, right? There's, just, there's some practical application here for us, I think. We're dealing with spiritual entities. We can't wage war the way we'd normally wage war. It starts with our thinking. And our mindsets. What am I allowing into my mind every day? What am I taking in that's shaping the way that I think and feel? Is is the content of the media I consume godly and good? Is it helping me to stay focused on the mission? Or is it distracting me? Is it leading me into temptations? Is it leading me to sin? Starts with our mindset. Now, most of us in the church today are compromised in our ability to wage war because of what we allow into our hearts and minds every day. That's just, that's just the reality. That's the reality. And compromise means ineffective, and that's exactly where Satan wants us to be. He wants us to be ineffective. So my question, what are, what are you going to do about it? I'm not going to give you three points. If you do these this week, you'll be good with God. You'll be effective. I'm not interested in doing that. Like, what are you going to do about it? What am I gonna, I'm asking myself the same question as I go home today. What am I going to do different this week so that I can be more effective for the kingdom of God? I'm going to be used of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to the lost and to oppose our enemies. He tries to take ground from us. What are we going to do about it? You see, our foe is formidable and his goal is to destroy us and to undermine and discredit the cause of Christ. He is the prince of the demonic realm. He's the highest of angelic beings fallen because of the sin of pride. He appears as an angel of light so as to deceive us. And we've got to learn to respect our foe, but not fear him. We've got to become familiar with his tactics, but not preoccupied with them. Because as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Jesus has already won the war. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. We're going to do what we've done a couple of times in the past. I'm going to just give you an, uh, a, a sentence or an idea and let you pray into that for just a moment. We'll do a couple of those and then I'll wrap us up. Father, as we come to you right now in the name of Jesus and the power of your spirit, having worshiped and having heard your word, and uh, read it together, uh, tried to understand it by the, by the goodness of your grace and the power of your spirit, we just ask, Lord, that additionally you would increase our awareness of our enemy and his schemes. I pray that for every person in the room. Right now, it's right where you are. Would you begin to pray into that uh, increased awareness of our enemy and his schemes all around us. Just ask the Lord to do that for you. Jesus, says, you answer that prayer in our hearts, in our lives this week, even today, we acknowledge that the key to the power to defeat our enemy is holiness. When we are not holy, uh, experientially, we're not holy in the way that we're living, we are ineffective for your kingdom. We are letting sin into our lives, letting it dictate how we live And so, Lord, we just stop and we ask for increased holiness in our personal lives and in the church collective, Lord. Pray that right now. Just ask him for holiness. Jesus we just affirm that these build on each other Lord as we go forward we, we're asking you now for revival in the church and that that revival in the church I think we, we get it wrong we talk about a revival in our land but uh, revive is to bring back to life that which was alive and we, we need uh, an awakening in our land so that the lost would come to know you but the church needs a revival the church needs a revival would you send that, Lord? We ask you for that right now, in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, I pray that these um, these prayers, Your saints, we would we would not cease asking for these things just because the music is starting back up or we're leaving this room or leaving this building, but that this would go with us into our homes, into our lives as we sit around this afternoon, as we enjoy meals together with family this evening. Lord, we would be mindful of your presence. We'd be mindful of the war that's raging around us and you would begin to open our eyes and call us to deeper walking with you. Equip us for warfare, Lord, and teach us how to wield the sword of the Spirit and the armor that you provided for us, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and grace, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We need that living hope, because we live in a world that's at war, a war that's raging all around us, all the time. It's unseen. So I encourage you this morning: go in the power of the Holy Spirit and wage war on our enemy. Make war. I love that Latin uh, "parabellum" is to prepare for war, and I didn't say "parabellum," bellum. That in Latin means make war. Don't just prepare; engage. Engage the enemy this week. Pray for your family. Pray over your home. Pray for your marriage. Engage in warfare. Go in the power of the Spirit and rescue men, women, boys and girls from Satan's clutches by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The Metro Church you are sent.